This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Richard Rothstein, in addition to being an author, is a senior fellow at the Haas Institute. He's a distinguished fellow of Economic Policy Institute, and he works on policy issues regarding education and race. He has served as senior fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and was previously a senior fellow at the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Law and Social Policy at Berkeley's Law School. His book, which I assume many of you have read, um, has been referred to as rare providing careful analyses of multiple historical documents. It's been referred to as original and masterful, a masterful explication of the single most vexing problem facing black America, and that is the concentration of poor and middle class into segregated neighborhoods. We are delighted that that, um, Mr. Rothstein could join us today. He is a member of the Haas Institute for Fair and Inclusive Society here on campus, a collaborator of ours. And please give him a warm welcome today. Thank you, Susan. And uh, uh, thank you um, for attending here and engaging in this conversation with me. Uh, with regard to Susan's introduction, as uh, I guess some of you know, when you're an old retired guy, you get lots of useless titles. And so you've heard a few of them. But uh, um, I do want to also comment on one other thing she said. I'm going to talk not about uh, the single most vexing problem facing black America, but uh, the single most vexing problem facing white America. This is not... Um, I frequently get asked to talk um, during Black History Month, and this is not about black history, it's about white history, and I want to spend some time explaining to you why. Um, In the 20th century, as you all know, we had a civil rights movement. It began uh, by challenging racial segregation in law schools because civil rights lawyers figured that if judges couldn't understand anything else, they might be able to figure out that you couldn't get a good legal education in a segregated law school. And then they used that precedent to challenge racial segregation in colleges and universities. Those precedents led eventually to a 1954 decision with with which you're all familiar, Brown versus Board of Education, that abolished uh, legal segregation in elementary and secondary schools. And then the Brown decision gave impetus to an already existent and growing civil rights movement that eventually went on to abolish segregation, not only with litigation and with legislation, but with marches and demonstrations and civil disobedience. People lost their lives. And it went on to abolish segregation in everything from lunch counters to water fountains to buses to interstate transportation to public accommodations. We came to understand that racial segregation was wrong, that it was immoral, that it was harmful both to blacks and to whites, uh, that it was incompatible with our self-conception as a constitutional democracy of equals. And yet, at the end of the civil rights movement, we folded up shop, went home, and left untouched the biggest segregation of all, which is that every metropolitan area in this country is residentially segregated. I've lived in many of them, 
everyone that I've lived in had clearly defined areas that were either all white or mostly all white or all black or mostly all black. How could it be that having understood that racial segregation was wrong, immoral, harmful to both blacks and whites, and incompatible with our self-conception as a constitutional democracy, that we left untouched the biggest segregation of all. It's not that we've tried to desegregate neighborhoods and failed. We've never tried. It's never been part of the civil rights agenda. I think in one sense it's perhaps not difficult to understand, uh, uh, and that is that racial segregation of neighborhoods is much more, dif- uh, much more difficult to undo and racial segregation of water fountains. If you abolish segregation of water fountains, the next day anybody can drink from any water fountain. If you abolish segregation in neighborhoods, the next day things wouldn't look much different. It's a much harder thing to attack. And so what we've done, all of us, and I mean all of us, I include myself, you, liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, Northerners and Southerners, What we've done is we've adopted a national excuse, a national rationalization for excusing ourselves from addressing the biggest remaining segregation of all that in many ways overwhelms all the others that we previously addressed. And that excuse goes something like this. We tell ourselves that racial segregation of schools or buses or water fountains, those are all required by government policy, by ordinance, by legislation, by regulation. Uh, as such, any time either the federal, state, or local governments required such segregation, it violated the Constitution, the Fifth or the Fourteenth Amendments. It was a civil rights violation, and we were obligated as a society to undo it. But residential segregation, we tell ourselves, that's something different. That wasn't created by government law, regulation, policy. That was something that just sort of happened by accident. It happened because, oh, private homeowners, white homeowners wouldn't sell homes to African Americans in white neighborhoods. Or actors in the private economy, real estate agents, banks, uh, discriminated in their policies. Real estate agents wouldn't show homes to Families in opposite race neighborhoods, banks wouldn't extend mortgages to African Americans. These were private economic activities. Or maybe we tell ourselves people just like to live with each other of the same race. They like to live with each other who look like them. Uh, Not that all African Americans look like each other and not that all whites look like each other, but that's what we tell ourselves. Or maybe we say that racial segregation happened simply because of economic differences. African Americans, on average not all, but on average have lower incomes than average white incomes, and so they too frequently can't afford to move to middle-class white neighborhoods. All of these individual, personal, uh, private, non-governmental decisions, economic forces, demographic trends, is what's created racial segregation. And we say what happened by accident can only unhappen by accident. It didn't violate the Constitution. Uh, The Constitution doesn't prohibit private discrimination. And therefore, it's not a civil rights violation and we're under no obligation to do something about it. We think it's too bad. I don't think there's anybody here in this room who thinks that it's a good thing that we're so racially segregated. But we don't feel any obligation to do anything about it. Well, I spent most of uh, the last many decades... Um, studying education policy. I was not an expert in housing policy or in residential arrangements. Uh, I knew a lot about education policy, and I I spent a lot of time writing articles and um, books uh, denouncing uh, the most commonplace education policy uh, uh, views in the country in the 1990s and 2000s in particular. Uh, During those decades, uh, it came to be the consensus view that the reason we had an achievement gap between African-American and white children, where African-American children typically, on average, scored lower on standardized tests than white children, um, was because teachers had low expectations of them. Uh, They weren't held accountable for students' achievement, and therefore they let African-American children off the hook. And if only we tested children more, and held children, uh, teachers accountable for those test scores, 
the achievement gap would disappear. And uh, that view was embraced in national policy, the No Child Left Behind law. Um, would you turn off your cell phone? <laughs> Whoever? <laughs> um, the No Child Left Behind law embraced that view. And I uh, spent uh, a great deal of time uh, denouncing it, saying it was other nonsense. And I wrote article after article, column after column, explaining why the, the predominant cause of the achievement gap was the social and economic differences that children came to school with. It had nothing to do with teacher expectations. Uh, and I won't go into it length about it because that's not the topic of this lecture, but just for example, uh, we know that African-American children in urban neighborhoods have asthma at four times the rate of middle-class children. And if a child has asthma, the child is likely to be up at night sometimes wheezing, comes to school drowsy the next day, uh, sleepless, maybe even doesn't come to school at all. Asthma is the largest single cause of chronic school absenteeism. And I tried to explain if you had two groups of children who were equal in every respect, identical groups, same race, racial breakdown, same social and economic characteristics, same family structure, identical in every respect, except one of those groups was different in this way. It had a higher rate of asthma than the other. That group was inevitably going to have lower average achievement. It's not that some children with asthma don't have higher achievement than typical children without because there's a distribution of outcomes for every human characteristic. But if school means anything, if you have a group of children who's coming to school more sleepless, more drowsy, that group is going to achieve at a lower um, level than an identical group that comes to school well-rested uh, and frequently. Well, I explain many, many of these characteristics that predict lower achievement uh, for um, characteristics that were more commonplace among uh, African-American children living in urban neighborhoods, whether it's lead poisoning that has a, a measurable effect on cognitive ability or homelessness or stress from family economic insecurity. There are dozens and dozens of the characteristics of lower class status in this country that predict lower school achievement. And if you add them all off, they explain the achievement gap, most of it. Um, and and uh, no matter how high teacher expectations are, they can't make higher expectations can't make children with asthma come to school well-rested. And then I began to thinking about all this. It, I'm, I'm a slow learner. I was thinking about this for a while, for many years, even decades, as I said. Um, it occurred to me that if um, you have a school where every child is coming to school with one or more of these conditions, it's inconceivable that that school can produce students with the same average achievement as schools where every child or almost every child is coming to school well-rested and healthy and well-nourished and secure and in stable homes. And we call schools where we concentrate children like that segregated schools. And the reality is that schools today are more segregated than they have been at any time in the last 45 years in this country. And they're segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. So as an education policy analyst, it was incumbent upon me to look into neighborhood segregation as an educational problem. I wasn't yet particularly interested in housing. I wrote articles saying that housing policy is education policy. Well, I, as I was thinking about this in 2007, I read a Supreme Court case that concerned two school districts, one in Louisville, Kentucky, and the other, Seattle, Washington. And both of the, the leaders of both of those school districts understand, understood what I've just been talking about, about the, the, the harm that school segregation does. And so they implemented in both districts a very, very token school desegregation policy. In both of those districts, parents were given a choice of um, which school in the district their child would attend, but if the child's choice was going to exacerbate racial segregation, that choice wouldn't be honored in favor of a choice of a child who would not do so. So if you had an all-white or mostly heavily white school and there was one place left in the school and both a black and a white child applied for that one place, the black child would be given some preference to help to desegregate the school. 
It was a trivial, trivial program. Uh, now how often do you have one place left in the school and both a black and a white child apply for it? But the Supreme Court said it was a violation of the Constitution to do this thing. Uh, it was a violation of the Constitution because, as John Roberts said, Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the controlling opinion, he said the schools in Louisville and Seattle are segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. I thought that was a pretty wise observation on the Chief Justice's part. It was, uh, it's true. And then he went on to say neighborhoods in Louisville and Seattle are segregated for all the reasons that I just described because of private bigotry and actors in the private economy and people liking to live with each other, the same race and economic and demographic trends. And he said if government wasn't involved in creating the segregation, it would be a violation of the Constitution for government to try to remedy it. Uh, well, I thought about this decision for a while and uh, because, uh, like I could see, uh, not usually the audiences I speak with, like many of you, I've been around for a while. And um, I remembered reading about a case some years before in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the two districts that this Supreme Court case involved. And in Louisville, Kentucky, there was a suburb called Shively, single-family homes, all white. And a homeowner in that white suburb had a friend living in the city of Louisville, renting an apartment. The friend was a decorated Navy veteran. He had a wife and a child. He wanted to move to a single-family home, but nobody would sell him one. So the white homeowner in the suburb of Shively bought a second home in the same suburb and resold it to his African-American friend so he wouldn't have to go through a real estate agent. And when the African-American friend and his wife and daughter moved into this home, an angry white mob surrounded the home, protected by the police, they threw rocks through the windows. Uh, despite the police presence, they couldn't identify a single perpetrator. They eventually dynamited and firebombed the home, and the police still couldn't identify a single perpetrator. But when this riot was all over, the state of Kentucky arrested, tried, convicted, and jailed the white homeowner for sedition, for having sold a home in a white neighborhood to a black family. And I said to myself, this doesn't sound to me much like de facto segregation. If the entire criminal justice system, the courts, the police, the prosecutors are being used to enforce racial boundaries, maybe there's something about the history of residential segregation that Chief Justice John Roberts doesn't know. And so I began to investigate it further, and it led to the book that Susan described to you. It's called The Color of Law. Uh, and in the Color of Law, I document that not only was there this incident in Louisville, in fact, just taking cases where police protected violence drove African Americans out of homes in white neighborhoods, there were hundreds and hundreds of them, each one of them violating the 14th Amendment to the extent that the police were involved and prosecutors were involved and judges were involved. Not only was there violence that maintained racial boundaries protected by government, but there were many, many other policies followed by federal, state, and local governments racially explicit to ensure that African-Americans and whites could not live near each other in any metropolitan area in this country. Uh, because I was able to show this in the book, and, and I'm, uh, I will describe to you some of the other major policies uh, that the government followed, the notion of de facto segregation is an other myth. There's no such thing. Uh, racial segregation in neighborhoods was created in an unconstitutional fashion by federal, state, and local government. As such, it's a civil rights violation. It remains a civil rights violation because the policies that government followed in the 20th century were so powerful that they determined the racial boundaries of today. And because it's a civil rights violation, the racial concentrations that we have in every metropolitan area violate the Constitution, we, all of us as American citizens, have an obligation, an obligation to reignite the civil rights movement, to demand that we remedy it. Well, let me describe in, in uh, the few minutes I have uh, this afternoon some of the major policies that government followed, in addition to sponsored violence to ensure racial segregation and that demonstrate that we have an unconstitutional system of segregation, that there is no reality to the de facto myth that we've all 
all of us adopted. One of them I want to describe to you is public housing. Now, I know that everybody here, I assume, like I did before I did this research, thinks they know what public housing is. It's a place where poor people live. It's a place with lots of single mothers with children, lots of young men without jobs in the formal economy, lots of police uh, confrontations, deteriorated buildings, um, uh, less not, not well-maintained structures. Um, that's not how public housing began in this country. Public housing began in this country during the New Deal, in the Roosevelt administration and the Depression, as a program not for poor people. Poor people were not permitted into public housing. It was a program for working and middle-class families who paid the full cost of the housing in their rent. Public housing was built not as a welfare program for the poor, but as a way to address a housing shortage in the Depression. Because working families, and there were many of them, we know that enormous unemployment, 25% of the workforce was unemployed. Public housing was for the 75% with good, stable jobs. Uh, but they couldn't find housing because there was no economic activity. Construction had ground to a halt, and there was a big housing shortage. So the Public Works Administration, uh, the first New Deal agency, attempted to address this, house, this housing crisis by constructing public housing for working families who would pay the full cost of the housing and the rent. It was not a subsidized program. But everywhere that the Public Works Administration built this housing, it created separate projects for blacks and whites, creating segregated projects. I'm not talking about in the South. I'm talking about in the North, in the Midwest. Wherever the, the Public Works Administration built housing, it built it on a segregated basis frequently, creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. Now, that uh, may surprise uh, uh, some of you, uh, but we had a lot of integration in mid-20th century in urban areas. I'm not suggesting that we didn't have a good deal of segregation as well that arose informally, particularly in places like Chicago and Detroit. But in much of the country in downtown areas, we had integrated neighborhoods for the simple reason that most employment was factory employment. Uh, the manufacturing sector was the most powerful sector in that, at that period in the country. And employment had to be located in factories that were in near deep water ports or railroad terminals because that was the only way that uh, plants could get their parts and ship their final products. And if you had a downtown area which had a factory district uh, located near a, a port or a railroad terminal. And the factory district had Irish workers and Italian workers and Jewish workers and African-American workers. They all lived in roughly the same neighborhoods so they could walk to work. They didn't have automobiles in those days. Sometimes they could sh take short streetcar rides. I'm not suggesting that every other home in these neighborhoods was of a different race. But these were broadly integrated neighborhoods. Everywhere the Public Works Administration went, it created segregated housing in these neighborhoods. The great African-American poet, novelist, the playwright Langston Hughes, uh, with whom I, I assume many of you are familiar, wrote in his autobiography how he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. Uh, we don't think of downtown Cleveland as being an integrated place today. He said his best friend in high school was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. Uh, this may not have been the norm, but it certainly wasn't unique in the integrated environment of many urban areas at that time. But the Public Works Administration went into that neighborhood of Cleveland and created two separate projects, one for blacks, one for whites, creating a pattern of segregation that hadn't previously existed. And with those and other projects, public projects that were built in Cleveland, created a pattern of segregation throughout the city that persists to this day. Uh, in my... Um, a book, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, The Color of Law. I like to talk about self-satisfied smug places like this one. Uh, but I'll, I'll start with another, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, you, may be, you may have heard of that one. Uh, uh, the area between Harvard and MIT, the Central Square neighborhood, was an integrated neighborhood in the 1930s, about half black and half white. But the Public Works Administration demolished housing in that neighborhood, creating separate projects one for whites, one for blacks, and with other projects in the Boston metropolitan area, created a pattern of segregation that persists to this day. During World War II, there was still an enormous housing shortage, especially because we had hundreds of thousands of workers who flocked to centers of war production 
to take jobs in war plants uh, that were um, soaking up the unemployment that existed in the country at that time. They frequently, almost always, overwhelmed the communities where these war plants were located, such a rapid influx of, of workers coming to a single place, that if the government wanted the tanks and the airplanes and the jeeps and the ships to be produced, it had to somehow find a way to house these workers who were flocking suddenly to these centers of war production. And the government did. It built housing for war workers all across the country, everywhere segregating it. Segregating workers who were working in the same plants, same shipyards, same aircraft factories, um, but separate housing, um, uh, creating patterns of segregation that hadn't previously existed. And here on the West Coast, and in this particular area, is the best example because there was a very small African-American population in the West Coast uh, prior to World War II. Historians divide up the, the, um, the migration of African-Americans out of urban areas, out of the South into urban areas, into two great migrations. The first great migration took place around World War I. Very few African-Americans came to the West Coast during the first great migration. The big influx of African-Americans to this part of the country took place in the second great migration during World War II for these war plants. Uh, the Bay Area, for example, had a, a, an African-American population of about 1% in 1940, and by uh, 1950 it was 6%, uh, quite an enormous increase due to the war industries. Well, north of here you may have heard of a suburb of Berkeley called Richmond. It was the center of shipbuilding on the West Coast. Small community, 20,000, all white. Uh, there were a few uh, uh, African-Americans living on its outskirts, uh, working as domestics in white families' homes, but uh, basically it was a white community. There was no shipbuilding in Richmond before uh, the war. By the end of the war, the Kaiser shipyards in Richmond were employing 100,000 workers. They came with their families. Uh, a community of, of 20,000 can't possibly absorb an influx of 300,000 or more in a period of four years. The government couldn't keep these shipyards going unless it provided housing for the workers, and it did. In um, Richmond, going down through Albany and here into Berkeley, uh, the, the government built housing for war workers, for shipyard workers, segregated housing. Housing for African Americans was along the railroad tracks that, then, that uh, you know, come along the bay and in the industrial area. Housing for white war workers were uh, closer to uh, San Pablo and shopping districts and the white residential areas of these communities. Um, we can confidently say that this segregation created segregation uh, in the West Coast that otherwise would never have existed because there was no real significant uh, informal segregation that existed before the government came in and segregated workers who, as I say, were working in the same plants. And Portland, Seattle, here in the Bay Area, Los Angeles, the segregation in all of these communities can be traced directly to the creation of segregated housing by uh, federal authorities uh, during World War II. By the way, after World War II, uh, the um, federal government ordered that the, the housing that was created for war workers be either demolished or turned over to local housing authorities. Most places in the country, local housing authorities took over the housing and uh, used it for its citizens who needed it. Berkeley refused to take it over. Uh, much of the land that was um, uh, devoted to this housing was um, owned by the University of California. Uh, the city of Berkeley said that uh, uh, maintaining this housing would change the character of the community, and it was not willing to take it over. The University of California said that the housing was unsuitable for residential areas, uh, for residences on a permanent basis, um, and so it refused to um, allow the housing to be uh, maintained. It was demolished, and in its place we now have University Village, uh, which is apparently suitable for residences um, in the, for graduate students and um, of university families. Uh, the, university, the city of Berkeley had a social worker whose job it was to place 
African Americans who were had been living in the um, housing projects uh, for the uh, the shipyards to place them in public housing in Oakland to make sure that they left the community. And this was the policy of the city of Berkeley. Well, after World War II, there was still an enormous housing shortage in the country. And um, uh, not only had there been no housing built during the Depression, except for the the public projects that I described, there were few. And uh, during the war, it was uh, was actually prohibited to use uh, construction materials for civilian purposes, unless it was for war workers, people working in war plants, And then after World War II, as you know, millions of returning war veterans uh, came home needing housing. There was an enormous housing shortage. Uh, War veterans were uh, living in open fields and Quonset huts, doubled and tripled up with um, uh, relatives. Uh, uh, They wanted to start the baby boom, but that was more difficult because they didn't have any private places to live. And uh, this was an enormous crisis that President Truman needed to address. And uh, he proposed... Uh, in 1949, as the, the situation didn't seem to ease at the end of the war, he proposed a vast expansion of the public housing program of the country. And remember, we're talking about public housing. That was not subsidized. This was not for poor people. This was, he was talking about housing for returning war veterans who had jobs in the post-war economy, uh, African-Americans as well as whites. The whites had better jobs, but the African-Americans were employed as well. They could afford housing, but there was no housing available for them. So President Truman proposed a vast expansion of the national public housing program. The story I'm going to tell you now is probably the most important thing I'll have to say this afternoon to you, so I hope you'll you'll think carefully about it. Conservatives in Congress wanted to defeat Truman's public housing program. And so they came up with a strategy, a congressional strategy that uh, has been used on other occasions as well. It's something we call a poison pill strategy. A poison pill strategy is one where opponents of legislation come up with an amendment to the legislation which they think can get a majority and will be passed. But then when the full bill comes up before Congress with this amendment, the amendment itself makes the bill unpalatable to a different majority, and the entire bill goes down to defeat. So the amendment is called a poison pill. And conservatives in Congress, um, some of you um, will remember Robert Taft, a senator from Ohio, he's called Mr. Conservative, proposed the following amendment. He proposed an amendment that said that from now on, public housing has to be desegregated. No more racial discrimination in public housing. This was the amendment he proposed. It was a cynical proposal. Uh, He uh, didn't want public housing at all. Uh, He thought that public housing was socialistic, that uh, the private sector should be taking care of the needs of returning war veterans, not that the private sector was doing so. But he put forward this amendment, expecting that his conservative colleagues would vote for the integration amendment, all cynically. Uh, He expected that he would get some northern liberals to uh, vote with him, Uh, On this amendment, the combination of the conservatives and northern liberals would create a majority. The amendment would then be passed. And then when the full housing bill came up before the floor of Congress, um, uh, providing for a desegregated housing program, the conservatives would flip and vote against the final bill. They would be joined by southern Democrats who were in favor of segregated public housing, but not integrated public housing, so the entire bill would go down to defeat So northern liberals, those who were in favor of integration, had a very difficult choice. There was an enormous housing crisis. I'm not minimizing the the difficulty of the choice they faced. They were homeless people, as we have today. As I said, people living in open fields, doubled and tripled up with relatives. They had to decide whether to support the integration amendment, as many of them wanted to do, but ensuring then that no public housing, no further public housing would be built because the bill would go down to defeat or oppose the integration amendment in order to get public housing on a continued segregated basis. They made the latter choice. I'm not minimizing the difficulty of the choice that they made. uh, I don't usually talk to audiences that will remember the the players involved, but I see many of you uh, will. But the, the leading liberal in Congress at that time was Senator Paul Douglas, a senator from Illinois. Um... 
He got up on the floor of the Senate and made a speech along the following lines. He said, I want to say to my Negro friends that you'll be better off if we defeat the integration amendment and you get the housing you need than you will be if we pass the integration amendment and you get no housing at all. Uh, He proposed the devil's bargain. It was accepted. Liberals voted against the integration amendment. The final housing bill was passed, leading to the vast expansion of public housing. Much of the public housing we know in the country today was passed under this 1949 Housing Act as a segregated program. Um, The federal government used that vote in Congress against the integration amendment uh, as, as its basis, as its justification for continuing to segregate all housing programs, not just public housing, all housing programs for the next 15 years. And you're familiar with this public housing that was built uh, under this. Again, remember, initially just for working families who could pay the full cost of housing and their rent, not for poor people. Uh, perhaps the most famous of them is uh, pruitt Igo in St. Louis. It became the symbol of, uh, of deteriorated public housing in the country. Uh, it was actually two projects. Pruitt was for African-Americans. Igo was for whites, two separate projects. Uh, and very soon after this happened, after these projects were built in the early 1950s under the 1949 Housing Act, a development occurred that was quite surprising to many people, and that was large numbers of vacancies developed in the white projects and long waiting lists in the black projects. Pretty soon the situation became so conspicuous and untenable even the most bigoted public housing official couldn't justify a situation where in the same city some projects were virtually empty and the others had long waiting lists All the projects were opened up to African-Americans. At about the same time, industry left the cities. Um, This was the time that the highways were being built. Uh, They no longer needed to locate plants near deep water ports or um, uh, railroad terminals. Uh, The African-Americans, who were um, now being concentrated in public housing and and in rented apartments in urban areas, um, no longer had access to good industrial jobs. Poverty increased. The government had to begin subsidizing the public housing. They could no longer afford to pay the full cost of housing and their rent. Once the government began subsidizing public housing, it stopped maintaining it, stopped investing in it. The projects deteriorated, and we got the kind of public housing that we all identify with public housing today. But that's not how public housing started, and that's not the way it has to be. Um, In any event, the question uh, that, that... must, I hope, is, is in your minds at this point, um, or maybe you have the answer if you've read my book, but uh, the question that, that, that may be in your mind is, why did all these vacancies occur in the white projects and not in the black ones? These were all people who had jobs in the post-war economy. Uh, they were, as I say, the whites had better jobs, but they all had jobs. The reason for this was another federal program which was even more powerful in segregating the country Uh, than uh, public housing or even violence uh, uh, against uh, African-Americans who moved to white neighborhoods. And that was a program of another New Deal agency, the Federal Housing Administration, still exists today, um, designed explicitly with an explicit racial purpose to move the entire white working-class population out of cities into single-family homes in the suburbs. This was an explicit racial policy of the federal government. It's how the country came to be suburbanized in the 1940s and 50s and into the 60s. We were not a suburban country before the FHA entered the scene in this way. And you're again familiar with these projects. Uh, Levittown, the most famous east of New York City, you all know that. Uh, Here in this area, um, some of you I'm sure heard uh, a song that Pete Seeger used to sing, written by Malvina Reynolds, about little boxes on a hillside made of ticky-tacky, and they all look the same. Uh, that was a project just about as large as Levittown um, in Daly City called Westlake. Um, 15,000 homes. Levittown was 17,000 homes. Uh, after World War II, when uh, the Kaiser shipyards no longer um, were producing ships for the war and shut down, uh, Kaiser got into the uh, housing business and built an equally giant development in, in for outside Los Angeles, for example, the Westchester area. Panorama City was another one. Um, Lakewood in Los Angeles, uh, uh, near the McDonnell Douglas plant in Long Beach. Um, these, these 
suburbanize the country. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these projects. A developer like William Levitt, to take that example, could never have assembled the capital to build 17,000 homes in one place for which he had no buyers. There was no precedent for it. Nobody knew if the suburbanization idea would work. No bank would be crazy enough to lend him the capital for that kind of uh, speculative venture. The only way that these suburbs could be built, whether it's Levittown or the Little Boxes or uh, Panorama City or any of the others in between the two coasts, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, was builders like Levitt went to the Federal Housing Administration, submitted their plans for the development. Those plans had to include a commitment never to sell a home to an African-American. They even had to include a commitment that the Federal Housing Administration required that each of these homes have a a clause in every deed prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. This was not the action of rogue bureaucrats. This was written in the Federal Policy Manual of the Federal Housing Administration. It was called the Underwriting Manual. It was distributed to appraisers all over the country whose job it was to evaluate the applications of developers uh, for bank guarantees, for federal bank guarantees for their developments, and the manual prohibited recommendation of uh, bank guarantees for developments that would be integrated. It even prohibited recommendations uh, of bank guarantees for all white developments that might be located near where African-Americans were living because, in the words of the manual, it would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That's what the federal manual said. Where did this notion of de facto segregation come from? It's utter nonsense. Uh, These policies that I described, the, the violence protected by the police, the Um, Public housing, the concentrated um, African-Americans with lower and lower incomes in urban areas, and the federally sponsored white-only suburbanization of the country is what's responsible for the segregation that we see in this country today. There were many, many other federal, state, and local policies that I don't have time to go into. Um, We have a de jure system of segregation, one that's as unconstitutional as much a civil rights violation is the segregation of water fountains. Um, Now, the policies have ongoing effects. This is not simply, what I've been talking to you about, is not simply a historical curiosity. They continue to determine the racial boundaries of today. And let me just uh, give you one example of how uh, that happens. Uh, The homes in these suburbs that I just described, Levittown, for example, or, or Westlake and Daly City. They sold for around eight, nine, ten thousand $10,000 in the early 1950s, late 1940s. Uh, in today's inflation-adjusted money, that's about $100,000. These were modest homes, 750 square feet typically for working-class families. Those homes today no longer, as you know, sell for $100,000. Not here in Berkeley, not in Westlake, not in Levittown. They now sell for, depending on the area of the country, you know, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, and some places much, much more, like here. The white families who purchased those homes with a federal subsidy, it was an enormous advantage to them to do so. They could move out of public housing uh, and pay less in their monthly housing costs than they were paying for rent in public housing. The white families who moved into these suburbs purchasing homes for the equivalent of $100,000 in today's money. That's twice national median income. Any working-class family can afford to buy a home for twice national median income, uh, especially if they were returning war veterans and from whom no down payment was required. Those families over the next couple of generations gained equity from the appreciation of their homes. They used that equity, whether it was two, three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, maybe they spent some of it remodeling, still substantial equity. They used it to send their children to college. They used it to take care of emergencies, whether temporary unemployment or um, uh, medical emergencies. Uh, They used it to subsidize their retirements, and they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren so they would have down payments for their own homes. 
African-Americans who were prohibited by federal policy, by explicit federal policy, from participating in this wealth-generating exercise continued in large part to remain renting in urban areas from which they gained no equity appreciation. The result is that today, African-American incomes, on average, are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. Um, that's another whole lecture about how that happened, that 60%. I'm not going to hold you here for that one. But let's just take the 60% income ratio as a given. You would think with a 60% income ratio, there would also be a 60% wealth ratio. But in fact, the African-American wealth average today is 10% of white household wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century that was never remedied and that we've never attempted to remedy. The wealth gap that I've just described is the major determinant of ongoing social racial inequality in this country today. Uh, wealth is a much more important determinant of economic security than income. If you have uh, uh, unemployment, temporary unemployment, and you've got wealth, you can weather that temporary unemployment. If you don't, you're pushed further down the social scale uh, on a permanent basis, the socioeconomic scale on a permanent basis. But it's not just this, the inequality that results from the wealth gap that is a consequence of the racial inequality that, and segregation that we've created with these policies. I described at the very beginning of this talk how segregated neighborhoods are a major cause of the achievement gap in schools that we spend so much time worrying about. Racial segregation is an important cause of disparities in health and life expectancy between African Americans and whites who have shorter African Americans have shorter life expectancies, higher rates of heart disease, in large part, not entirely, but in large part because they live in more polluted, less healthy neighborhoods. Racial segregation is the primary cause of the outrageous uh, violations of, of uh, rights in the criminal justice system that results in the disparate incarceration of young black men who would never get involved in the kinds of confrontations with police that they do if they weren't being concentrated in single neighborhoods where we take the most disadvantaged young men in this country without jobs in the formal economy or access to those jobs with good transportation or access to, to quality educations and concentrate them in single neighborhoods. We would not have those kinds of confrontations otherwise. And I'd also suggest that uh, racial segregation is a contributor, not the sole cause, but a contributor to the very dangerous political polarization that we have in this country today, which tr in part tracks racial lines. That's not the sole cause of it, but that's a good part of it. And it's inconceivable that... Uh, we can never develop the kind of national, common national identity that's essential to preserving this democracy if so many African Americans and whites live so far from each other that they have no ability to understand each other's life experiences, to uh, empathize with each other, to, as I say, develop a common national identity. So the consequences of these civil rights violations that are still unremedied are enormous. Uh, the policies needed to undo it are not hard to figure out. They're very easy to figure out. Uh, if we were motivated to, uh, to redress racial segregation, we could do it fairly easily. What's difficult is developing the new civil rights movement that's necessary to demand those policies. I mentioned before the devil's bargain that Paul Douglas made in 1949. We're doing it still today. We have a program, for example, uh, the largest program of subsidy to low-income families who are disproportionately African-American uh, called the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. It's a tax credit that's issued by the Treasury Department to developers of low-income housing. Those developers disproportionately, overwhelmingly, place those low-income housing developments in already low-income segregated neighborhoods. Uh, the same kind of devil's bargain that Paul Douglas made. They place it in those neighborhoods because it's easier to do. If they care about the 
solving the housing shortage, and they do, the easiest way to address the homelessness crisis is to reinforce segregation because developers find it easier to build low-income housing in already low-income segregated neighborhoods. The land is cheaper there. They don't have to have 100 community meetings explaining to residents why they're bringing black and brown people into their neighborhoods. They can put a sign up in the window and when a, an apartment is for rent and poor people will walk by seeing it. Can't happen if they're placing those developments in higher opportunity communities. So we make the same bargain that we made in 1949. We solve the housing crisis by perpetuating segregation. The same thing is true of the, the other major subsidy we have for um, low-income families, and that's the, uh, uh, the Section 8 program that I'm sure you've heard of. But uh, those subsidies to families to rent housing that they otherwise could not afford uh, disproportionately places them in already low-income segregated neighborhoods. Um, the landlords, legally or illegally, refuse to accept Section 8 voucher families in higher opportunity neighborhoods. And we have zoning ordinances that prohibit the construction of townhouses or apartments or even single-family homes on small lot sizes in so many all-white single-family home neighborhoods. Reversing those kinds of policies, as I say, is an easy thing to understand how to do. Uh, we could place a priority on placing low-income housing tax credit developments in higher-opportunity neighborhoods. Not all of them. We should still provide housing in existing low-income neighborhoods, but we should start to place more of it in high-opportunity neighborhoods. In order to do that, we have to change the zoning ordinances that prohibit that kind of construction. Um, we could um, subsidize, to make an extreme example, we could subsidize African-Americans who were denied the opportunity to move into single-family homes in all-white suburbs in the 20th century, subsidize them to purchase those homes, um, working-class families uh, in, in those neighborhoods that are now unaffordable to working-class families of either race, but would easily have been affordable to working-class families uh, of either race of African-Americans in the mid-20th century. The tragedy of all this is it was so difficult, so difficult to, to do, it would have been so easy to avoid. Uh, we had an enormous housing shortage in the 20th century, as I've described. If the Federal Housing Administration had told Levitt it would only guarantee his bank loans, if he sold those homes on a non-discriminatory basis, he would have had to do so. He would have had no choice. There may have been some bigoted whites who wouldn't have wanted to live in an integrated development, but the housing shortage was so great that for everyone who refused, there would have been 10 wanting to take its place. And if that simple requirement had been imposed, that constitutionally required requirement that housing be, uh, that the loans be guaranteed, provided a non-discriminatory policy was adopted, this country would look entirely different today, entirely different. And the same thing is true of all the other policies that I describe. So the policies to undo it are easy. The political will is difficult, and it won't happen until all of us uh, participate in a new civil rights movement to make it happen. So thank you very much for your attention. <clears throat>